Support for this podcast and the following message come from Crown, publisher of The Demon of Unrest, a saga of hubris, heartbreak, and heroism at the dawn of the Civil War by Eric Larson. The Demon of Unrest is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Zadie Smith. She's known for her essays and novels about contemporary life and art, including the novels White Teeth and On Beauty. Her new book, The Fraud, is a historical novel, but its themes of gender inequality, class, the literary life, and the enduring damages of slavery are very connected to the present. Also, we'll hear from comic Maria Bamford. She's written a new memoir called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, in which she describes the lengths she's taken to fit in, from self-help books to 12-step programs, and why making fun of her anxiety, depression, and OCD has been a powerful medicine. And TV critic David Bianculli will review the new Apple TV Plus series, The Changeling, starring Lakeith Stanfield. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. Our first guest, Zadie Smith, writes novels and essays about contemporary life and popular culture, She says she'd been prejudiced against historical novels, but she's just written one, set in Victorian England. It's called The Fraud. At its center is the years-long trial that ended in 1873 of a butcher who claimed to be Sir Roger Tickborn, the missing heir to the Tickborn estate and the title of baronet. A witness who testified on his behalf, Andrew Bogle, had been enslaved on a sugar plantation in Jamaica, which was then a British colony. After enslaved people on the island were emancipated in 1834, Bogle worked for a member of the Tickborn family. Half of the book is told through the point of view of Mrs. Eliza Touche, a widow in an era when widows had no means of supporting themselves. She became the housekeeper for her late husband's cousin, a once famous writer who remained prolific but had lost whatever talent he had formerly possessed and was forgotten. After she gets caught up in watching the trial, she asks Bogle to tell her his story. The second half of the book is about Bogle, the man formerly enslaved in Jamaica. The novel is based on real events and real people and examines British slavery as well as class, race, gender, and fraudulence during the Victorian era. Zadie Smith is British. Her mother is black and emigrated to England from Jamaica. Her late father was British and white, Smith became a critically acclaimed, best-selling author in her mid-twenties with the publication of her novel, White Teeth. Her other novels include On Beauty and Swing Time. She's also a regular contributor to The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books. Zadie Smith, welcome back to Fresh Air, and congratulations on your new novel. There's several different kinds of imprisonment or potential imprisonment in your book. There's the enslavement of Andrew Bogle, Right. The possible imprisonment of the man on trial and a more existential prison of Eliza Touche. She lives within the restrictions surrounding women during the Victorian era, but she also has a more existential imprisonment, which is a combination of her religion, her sense of what is proper, her temperament, and her fear of her own instincts, including her sexual instincts. Um, So... You do get to these different forms of imprisonment and self-imprisonment. Were you imagining what it would be like for you if you lived in those times as a woman? I'm always having that thought, but it's a double thought. The more obvious thought, I think, is what would it be like to live in times in which I had less freedom? 
But there's something about that argument which is very flattering to us, right? It always assumes that there is an arrow that arcs towards progress and we are the final and most perfected result of that system. And I don't feel that. I guess I feel both things. Obviously, at a practical level, I have less civil freedoms than in 1870 or 1850. But I was also interested in the idea is of what was it like to live without categories? That really interested me. Slightly prior to the invention of linguistic and conceptual categories for our experience, there must also have been freedoms contained within that. You know, it's like saying... What were the 2,000 years before photographs like? What kind of freedom is involved with not knowing your own image, with not being photographed, with only ever seeing a reflection in water or perhaps in a mirror if you had money? Freedom works both ways, you know what I mean? You, you gain freedoms, but you also lose things that might also have been of value. So it's that double thought process that's in my mind when I go backwards historically. I'm not only assuming that I am the perfected version of the past. I, don't, I never assume that. What are the categories you're talking about that didn't exist then? I think as I'm watching Eliza go through her life, I mean, the, the important thing for me to try and understand is that I think sometimes when we're young, we imagine that the sexual practices we are engage in or our interpersonal relations have never happened before in the history of the world. Now, that's not the case, right? So a good example is, say, something like polyamory. Looking back on Victorian marriages, like I was reading all these books about Victorian lives, I found it so hard to find a marriage that only contained two people. Like, it was really difficult. It was amazing how many Victorian marriages involve multiple players. Wait, wait no, is that because the husband uh, 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 took the liberties, the freedoms no, available not only. to him? Of course there's some of that, not only. But there are some very complicated marital relations in the Victorian period and some of them become visible at Bloomsbury right like that wonderful book I don't know if you've read it yet but the Tom Crew book A New Life is about exactly that moment where some of these relationships are beginning to have language around them and so once they have language they can also become enter into the legal sphere because you need language you need to identify a relationship in order to legally allow it you know to give it space in our civil society to his book is about a later period, but mine is about, you know, a period before there's even a language, really, for these kind of relationships. There's that famous case of Queen Victoria not thinking there needed to be any legal framework around lesbian life because she didn't believe lesbians existed, for example. So that's an example of what happens prior to language. Sometimes there are strange freedoms that can happen in the place where nothing is labelled and nothing exists. So that interested me too. Not that I guess most people would choose invisibility for visibility, but it doesn't mean that there isn't something in the unspoken life. I remember you telling me once that when you write a novel, you're also, you're often just like thinking ahead and what your, the issues in your life might be. So like before you were really raising children or just after they were born, you wrote a novel about what it would be like to be a parent. And I think just as you were getting married, you wrote about what it would be like to be in a marriage. And, you know, she's a widow in this. She loses her husband leaves in part because he realizes his wife is queer um, and he takes their young son and nursemaid with him. But he and the young son die of scarlet fever. So Eliza becomes a widow. And there's no place in the world for her, you know, because women can't really earn a living then. They're, they're not meant to be independent. They're not really allowed to be independent. So she becomes the housekeeper for her cousin. Um, and she feels like a third wheel. Um, were you like thinking ahead, like, what happens I mean, obviously, you, you, you're not living in the 19th century, you're not living in Victorian England, but were you wondering, like, what happens if your husband dies before you do and you're no longer part of a couple? I can't say that was in my mind, but I was thinking about age, for sure, about what it would like to be old. I think that's one of the things that is the hardest for us to imagine when we're still young. You, you understand it in a technical sense, 
but you fundamentally don't understand it. You don't believe it. You believe everybody else will get old and you through your cult of wellness or your green juice or whatever it is will be the unique exception <laughs> to the ageing and death uh, inevitability. And I, I don't think anybody's quite free of that delusion. So certainly writing about people older than myself is a way of thinking it through. And I don't know, like, when we think about that arc of progress, if there's such an enormous progress made between women ageing in the 1860s and women ageing now. From what I hear from older women, women older than myself, some of the same complaints of invisibility, of being cast aside, of being forgotten, of having no place, seem to still stand, no? So I don't think it's a vanished problem. What are some of the things you found, nevertheless, most disturbing about women's lives and restrictions in the era that you write about? I don't know. I have a young daughter. And when I hear people speak of, you know, we've gone through so many waves of feminism. And so it should be that we're in some kind of ideal state where a 13-year-old girl is happier than she's ever been. But anyone listening to this who has a 13-year-old girl, do you find that to be true? I'm just not convinced that all liberating arcs create existential personal happiness the way we might hope them to, and that new problems arise. So that, again, makes you question this, to me, kind of neoliberal idea of continual progress. I don't see human life like that. I think it's a continued struggle. And every generation throws up new repressions, new forces of oppression, new things that are hard for women. So again, I don't feel that I look back on the Victorian period with a sense of superiority. I really didn't. There's a relevant passage in your book I'd like you to read about right. like the, the stages of a woman's life, the way Eliza Touche, the housekeeper, sees it. Mrs. Touche is thinking about what we call the menopause, what she would have called the change and what would have been, I suppose, whispered from woman to woman. She's considering that in her own mind and this is about that. The change marked in the mind of Mrs. Touche, the final hurdle in a lady's steeplechase. The humiliations of girlhood. The separating of the beautiful from the plain and the ugly. The terror of maidenhood. The trials of marriage or childbirth, or their absence. The loss of that same beauty around which the whole system appears to revolve. The change of life. What strange lives women lead. I mean, I, I think at that point it's 1860, but I don't see a great difference between that and 2023. Okay, to prove that point, I'm going to paraphrase something you wrote about yourself in an essay in your collection. I think this was in your collection that you wrote during COVID. Um, and you wrote that as a young woman, you felt that you lived in a cage of your gender, and you thought that being female meant you were supposed to be tied to nature, to my animal body. I had cycles. My brothers did not. I was to pay attention to clocks. They needn't. There were special words for me lurking on the horizon, prepackaged to mark the possible future stages of my existence. I might become a spinster. I might become a crone. I might become a babe or a milf or childless. My brothers, no matter what else might befall them, would remain men. In the end of it all, if I was lucky, I would become that most piteous of things, an old lady, whom I already understood was a figure everybody felt free to patronize, even children. So do you, do you feel that connection between what you wrote about yourself and what you wrote about Eliza in the 1800s? Yes, but what I say in that essay, what I go on to say is that that kind of thinking, which I completely cop to as a young woman, to me is, is a form of internalised misogyny. In that the situation I'm describing is absolutely correct, but part of the response to it is then to denigrate these traditional, supposedly feminine areas of motherhood, of domesticity, whatever it is, cooking. So as if these things were not arts of life and as important as any other making or doing you do in this world. So the, the stating of the problem is correct, in my mind. But the solution my generation of women came to in response to it, I find somewhat depressing. And in fact, yesterday, listening to that extraordinary woman who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, is that what it's called? Um, it's a beautiful book about nature and her relationship with nature. 
she expressed exactly what I wish I could say, though I don't have a good relationship with nature, but she absolutely defended the realm of the female, the realm of even the mother, as a radical place. And that's something that I feel indigenous communities know, that my original community, African diaspora, know very well. An old woman is not in any way a shameful person in a diaspora I come from. She is a person of wisdom and power. So the denigrating of these roles to me is so purely about capital and from a place of capitalism that for me to denigrate them too is to join in that concept, and I don't believe that. My guest is writer Zadie Smith. Her new novel is called The Fraud. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and David Biancooli will review the new Apple TV Plus series The Changeling, a dark fairy tale based on a Victor Laval novel. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Sony Pictures Classics presenting Run, Lola, Run. The high-octane cinematic sensation has returned to theaters in magnificent 4K. With 20 minutes to save her boyfriend's life, Lola runs through the streets of Berlin to reach him and somehow pick up 100,000 marks along the way. As the clock ticks down, the tiniest choices become life-altering, and the fine line between fate and fortune begins to blur. Get tickets now at runlolarunfilm.com. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to my interview with novelist and essayist Zadie Smith. Her new novel, The Fraud, is centered around an actual trial that happened in real life in 1873 in London. The trial was of a man who claimed to be Roger Tichborne, the heir to the Tichborne estate and the title of Baron. And the main characters include... Mrs. Eliza Touche, whose son and estranged husband died of scarlet fever, and as a widow, her only means of support is working as her cousin's housekeeper, and he's a formerly successful, now-forgotten writer. One of the turning points in the book is when Eliza Touche, the widow who is now a housekeeper for her cousin, um, she's attending the trial, the fraud trial, and the only witness on behalf of the person claiming to be the heir to the fortune is a former enslaved man from Jamaica where he was enslaved on a British-run sugar plantation. And she takes an interest in his life and in the life of his father who was captured in Africa and then brought to Jamaica on a slave ship. Um, I know your mother emigrated to England from Jamaica. Before writing this book, did you know much about the history of slavery in Jamaica? Well, this is exactly the point. That that was what interested me. I knew more about the history of slavery in America than I knew about Jamaica. And the question is, why? And looking back at my childhood visits to Jamaica and my experience in English schools... Those were two places of absolute silence on the topic. To the point which I find really embarrassing now, but also somewhat enraging, that I don't think I'm the only one. I I would love to be told otherwise, but I think there were quite a lot of Caribbean children of my generation, first generation, who if you had asked them, where did Jamaicans come from, they would have said Jamaica. And if you said to them, who were the Taino Indians, they would not have known. And they were, of course, the native people of Jamaica, massacred by the Spanish. So that is an embarrassing ignorance. And at the same time, 
through hip hop, through American culture, I, I would have known at the same age a great deal about plantation slavery in America. I may be wrong, other people might have had different experiences, but I grew up with a mother very determined to give me a great deal of black history, but that part, I think both of us had a certain amount of ignorance about from the way she had been educated and the way I'd been educated. So, so her that, family didn't pass on stories about enslavement? No, I, I think you have to understand Jamaica, the the brutality of the, of the plantation system in Jamaica is like an aporia. It, it's like a blank space in intimate histories of families and in history. It, it, is, it was so brutal that I... I think the trauma around it is, um, it, there, there isn't really a language for it, to be honest. So your your mother is black and from Jamaica. Your father is white, was white, he's, he's deceased. He was white and from England. You live in England now. I mean, you were born in England. You live in the neighborhood that you grew up in. You lived in New York for 10 years. Um, and you've traveled a lot, too. Do you have mixed feelings about England as both your home, the place your mother emigrated to from Jamaica, but also as the colonizer of the place where your mother was born, the enslaver of your mother's ancestors? I guess perhaps the difference between me and sometimes people I come across is that mixed feelings to me are completely normal. And healthy. <laughs> I live in a place of mixed feelings. They they don't agonize me. I just experience them as fact. But I mean, if I want to stop uh, you for a second, yeah. I sometimes think there is something wrong with me if I have mixed feelings that I have to <laughs> that I have to like straighten it out. Not not in terms of England being colonizer and and enslaver, but. I don't, I, I don't know. I feel like it's sometimes like a flaw. So I'm glad to no, hear you say, it's, no, embrace children. it. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. Adults can have two thoughts at the same time. Children can't. Children find it very hard. They need one idea. But we're adults, and we can contain more than one idea. And, you know, if I, if I wanted to uh, defend my little intimate life, I could say, well, now both my parents are from poor, poor people. So it's a kind of fantasy to imagine that my father's family were the colonizers of my mother's family. They were both under the symbol of capital, both of them. Um, my father's family are peasants going back generations generations to Sutton Hoo. And my mother's family are peasants. So they both lived under the sign of capital and they both were families that lived and died in total obscurity and oppression for hundreds of years. So that would protect my little intimate soul. But, but even if my father was... Uh, from a rich or aristocratic family, I, again, don't believe in witchcraft. So I don't believe in the magical passing down of experience directly to to me. I believe in history and the things that happened, and I'm fascinated by them, and I want to know what happened. Um, but I, I don't... Um, I'm not torn apart by the, the vision of my mother and my father. It just interests me. It, those two histories interest me very much. You say that people think of writing as um, creative, very creative. But you say writing is really about control. And you think the creative writing department where you taught should be called the controlling experience department. (laughs) Because in the field, in the real world, experience has no chapter headings or page breaks or ellipses in which to catch your breath. It just keeps coming at you. Is that so that's part of the reason why you write to have a sense of control in life? I think so. Like whenever I'm gathered with a group of people over 40 now, we just kind of sit and stare into space and say things like, what is this life? <laughs> and, and I think that probably comes to everyone. You just, you, I have no idea what's going on most of the time. Like I cannot, I, I, I can't handle life at all. But when I'm writing, it's a controlled area and I can think things through a bit more calmly think through ideas, feelings, sort them. But but in the life, no. I'm, I'm like a merchant of chaos. I don't know what's happening. I don't know which way is up. I, I'm terrified of the future. I worry for about everything. I'm just another citizen caught up in it. Um, so the people you really 
need to admire the people who are in the world facing everything we're facing and yet able to really function, get out there, do grassroots action, act, keep acting, make decisions. I am not that person. I know I'm not. I'm I'm a writer. It's a very reduced role. And uh, I, I enjoy it and I love to do it, but it's not to be confused with people who are really able to act in the world in a positive way for others. So when you're in between books and you're not immersed in a novel and you're not immersed in an essay that requires deep thought, is life more difficult or is it more fun because you have some free time? You can you can go out more. You can enjoy yourself. For the first 10 days, it's glorious. I'm feeling very smug and uh, happy and I have more free time. But very soon, I I become extremely anxious and I, I think my children now say to me, look, because uh, they have the language of mental health, they would say to me, you're a manic depressive or you're bipolar. And I, I resist. I don't think that's true. I've never been diagnosed, but I, they're absolutely correct that I get sad without a book and I get energized with a book. So as I get older, I try to work on an even keel a bit more to recognize, oh, when there's not a book, I might be in some emotional trouble, I might feel anxious, and to really enter the world and and make up for the things I'm perhaps not doing when I'm writing, to really be involved with people, both people close to me and in the wider world. So I just try and bring it to mind. It's much better than when I was young, where I think I just really didn't realize, and people would have to point out to me, when you don't write, you can be a pain in the ass. And now I know. <laughs> Zadie Smith, it's been a pleasure talking with you again. Thank you so much for coming back to Fresh Air. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Zadie Smith's new novel is called The Fraud. The Keith Stanfield of the movie Get Out and the TV series Atlanta stars in the new Apple TV Plus series The Changeling. He portrays a young man who achieves his dreams and goals, romance, marriage, parenthood, only to have them descend into nightmares. Our TV critic, David Bianculli, has this review. The new Apple TV Plus series, The Changeling, like the Victor Laval book on which it's based, is a slippery story to categorize. It's a modern fairy tale set mostly in and around New York City. But it's also a romance and a horror story and a parable and a story about a person on a quest. Which means, when you think about it, that it really is a modern fairy tale or an updated Greek myth. And, for the most part, it's a very satisfying one. The creator and writer of this eight-part TV adaptation is Kelly Marcel, whose writing credits range from Fifty Shades of Grey and the Venom movies to Cruella and the delightful saving Mr. Banks, the story about the making of Disney's Mary Poppins. Here, she doesn't shy away at all from the depths and subtexts of Laval's novel. Very effectively, she weaves in everything from the weight of parental responsibilities to the gloom of postpartum depression, along with sudden bursts of disturbingly intense violence. Along the way, there are witches and mysterious faraway lands, and even a storybook type of narration provided for the TV version by author Laval himself. It's a tale that begins sweetly, like a rom-com, then veers down a dark and twisted path. Actually, the changeling begins by telling two different but related love stories. The first is about a young woman, Lillian, who marries and has a son. The son is named Apollo, and eventually, as a young man in New York, he meets and pursues a librarian named Emma. Apollo is played by Lakeith Stanfield from Get Out and Atlanta. Emma is played by Clark Bacco from the comedy series Letterkenny. And in this scene, on their first date, Apollo looks deeply into Emma's eyes, then blurts out his true feelings. Hmm. Wow. One of your eyes is bigger than the other. Oh. What? That's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. I think it's gorgeous, frankly. You're the most gorgeous person I've ever seen, <laughs> ever known. I mean, your soul is... My soul? Yeah. Dude, no. I mean, think of the kids we'd have. Kids. I never cared if I had a boy, a girl, oh. twins. Okay, a pop-up? Triplets, a drooplet. 
seriously. What? I mean, some people want to be an astronaut. Some people want to be a scientist. Some people want to be a zookeeper. A zookeeper? I just want to be cool. a good father to the kid I end up having. Very quickly, just as the changeling gets into gear, Apollo does have a son. But Emma has a problem connecting with the child. Shades of Rosemary's baby creep in. And then, as the characters' visions and nightmares get more sinister and threatening, so do echoes of some more mythic primordial stories. Rumpelstiltskin, Rapunzel. Before long, Apollo's family dream is shattered, and he sets out to discover what went wrong. The path leads him to secret social media sites and a mist-shrouded island, and, like Alice in Wonderland or Dorothy in Oz, he meets lots of puzzling characters along the way. One of them, a standout, is Cal, played by Jane Kaczmarek from Malcolm in the Middle. She tells Apollo to take warning from old folktales. So, how do we protect our children? That's what Rapunzel is all about. That's the question that it's asking. Clearly I'm the wrong person to ask. (sighs) You know, the, the husband, he protects himself over the baby. The baby gets snatched. And then the enchantress, I mean, she won't let that kid go anywhere in the world. She's like a a helicopter parent. And still, that prince, he manages to find a way inside. I mean, no matter what we do, the world finds a way in. So, how do we protect our children? That's a question that has been asked for hundreds of years, ever since fairy tales were first told around an evening fire. The new fears are the old fears, and the old fears are ancient. But when it's our turn to face them, they are made new. In tone, the changeling is close to another Apple TV Plus drama series called Servant, and even closer to the HBO horror series Lovecraft Country. But the closer the changeling gets to facing its demons, in a literal sense, the less it lives up to its own built-up expectations. Like so many movie and TV adaptations of Stephen King's stories, the ending here isn't so much a climax as a letdown. But that's not true of the performances. Lakeith Stanfield and Clark Bacow as Apollo and Emma are haunting and memorable, as are Adina Porter and Alexis Lauder, who play the older and younger versions, respectively, of Apollo's mother, Lillian. They all, like Kazmarek, make the changeling a TV story worth your time. David Bianculi is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed The Changeling. Coming up, we'll hear from comic Maria Bamford. She's written a new memoir called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, in which she describes the lengths she's taken to fit in from self-help books to 12-step programs. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Our co-host Tanya Mosley has our next interview. Here's Tanya. Today my guest is comedian Maria Bamford. She's written a new memoir called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult. It's a hilarious account of some of the extreme steps she's taken to belong, from earnestly taking advice from self-help books to attending debtors and overeaters anonymous meetings. Here's what I love about these meetings. Number one, free. Number two, 
free. <laughs> Number three, they can't kick you out. That's one of the main rules of the cult. So even if I go to a meeting with a full bottle of Jack Daniels and I'm eating an ice cream cake with a stolen porn DVD. <laughs> will ever say to me is, keep coming back. (laughs) That was a clip from Maria Bamford's comedy album, Crowd Pleaser, which complements her new memoir. Bamford is known for making fun of her anxiety, depression, and OCD. The Netflix original series Lady Dynamite, which aired for two seasons, was loosely based on her life. In 2014, Bamford was honored with the American Comedy Awards Best Club Comic and Breakout Comedy Star at the Montreal Comedy Festival. Her other comedy specials include The Maria Bamford Show and Unwanted Thought Syndrome. In season four of Arrested Development, she played Debris Bardot, Tobias Funk's love interest. Bamford is also a voice actor, starring in several animated series, including BoJack Horseman, Adventure Time, and Word Girl. Her new memoir, again, is titled, Sure, I'll Join Your Cult. Maria Bamford, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya. I am delighted. I want to play a clip from Crowd Pleaser, where you talk about cults in the context of 12-step groups. Let's listen. They're very weird. Uh, They're very weird. Pseudo-spiritual, paternalistic, Judeo-Christian language. uh, The, thou, he, him, etc. Peer counseling was a terrible idea. Uh, My husband went... (laughs) I brought my husband to one of the meetings and he said, These people need professional help. (laughs) Yes! Yes, they do. And yet, forthcoming and so here we are in this zoom breakout room that's maria bamford from her new comedy album crowd pleaser and maria you're using this term cult loosely i guess really there is a fine line between self-help and joining a cult yeah well i mean i think every i mean with the i think i put the definition at the beginning of the book of that it's just a, a group of people with a unique set of beliefs so I think sometimes I don't always realize when I'm adhering to a set of uh, beliefs that are odd, you know, that not everybody is. Uh, You know, I think uh, show business is definitely sort of a a cult uh, thing. uh, I live in Los Angeles and and. You know, it's not questioned of like if if your business calls, you do you do whatever they say, whatever it takes, right? Yeah, yeah, as if. It's a minor god, and uh, yeah, so, but everyone's on strike, so I guess <laughs> there is no god. Well, how many 12-step programs have you been a part of, and, and what do you been, like most about them? I've been to, uh, I think, around five, um, and I just want to say that is one of the main cult rules. You're not supposed to say publicly which groups you attend, uh, which my joke is that's impossible for me. I tell everybody everything, which is preventative honesty. Uh, if I tell you every single thing about myself, you can't at a later date say, but oh, I believe I was very clear on my second album, third track. But uh, yeah, I've been uh, in, uh, have attended uh, uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, Al-Anon, which is for friends and family of alcoholics. I've been to Alcoholics Anonymous, mostly just to their uh, meetings just when I'm out of town, just as a place to 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 go and um, see some, have some face-to-face, F-to-F, uh, it, because I do believe, for me anyways, is this is how I use these groups, is it's cognitive behavioral therapy or just the the healing eye contact of other individuals uh talking in a place that's authentic and trying to do something more positive with their lives. And it's also harm reduction. If I'm in uh, in my in a church basement for 90 minutes, uh, that's 90 minutes I won't be alone in a hotel room uh, mm-hmm. compulsively ordering nitro cold brew. Oh, my God. I think I've heard, like, I've heard, um, I think it was Mike Tyson who said he goes to every city he goes to, the first thing he does is find a 12-step. And it doesn't even matter what kind of group it is. He will go and sit in it. Yeah. That's that same yeah. thing. 
Yeah. yeah, it's it's really comforting. And there is one of the things they always say in these groups is take what you want, leave the rest. Um, there's no requ- the only requirement uh, for membership is a desire to stop doing whatever the nonsense the group is about. Um, so it's all about just a desire. You don't even have to stop <laughs> doing the thing, which I love. And uh, yeah, it's it's a very uh, welcoming space. It reminds me a lot of open mics, comedy open mics. Mm. Um, if you've ever been to a comedy open mic, there's mm-hmm. a bucket and you put your name in the bucket and then um, you get to go up and talk about whatever you want uh, for usually it's three to five minutes if you're in a major city. Uh, but I I really like that democratic process where uh, no one's in charge and uh even if you're saying something awful, you know, like people are going to go, all right. It is pretty hilarious how you describe the differences in the people who are part of these 12-step groups. So, for instance, you're part of Overeaters Anonymous. Of course, they're different than those who are part of Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Yes. Yeah. So there's all – well, there's a vibe to every single group that you go to. So there's – you know, always just different personalities. Um, I would say in the South, sometimes there's more of a Christian element. People will mention uh, Christian uh, things more often. Uh, but yeah, Overeaters Anonymous is is more often women, though uh, not always. Uh, you know, definitely there's men who suffer from eating disorders. Uh, but it's it's more of a quiet vibe. Also, I want to say more sorrowful, you know, because there's this loss and there aren't any mm-hmm. snacks, too, at the meeting, right. which is something that it was always snacks at N.A. and A.A. Now, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous uh, is there's the there's at least this is my experience is it's kind of like uh, a club when all the lights come on at the end of the night and uh, you go, oh, oh, that's who I've been talking to. <laughs> um, like <laughs> and everyone's got that. Everyone's vibe. Everyone's got a vibe like everyone's um, has those beautiful eyes that you look into and you kind of lose yourself in that. Those are the kind of people, uh, including myself. And I include myself in that group. Uh, I used to try to seduce people. Shifting gears a little bit, Maria, the first cult you joined, as you write in this book, was your family. And I want to offer my condolences on the death of your father, who died while you were writing this memoir, and your mom, who passed away a few years ago. We really got to know them, in a way, through your comedy. Yes. they. I, I miss them every single day. And um, I, I think I didn't realize, like, how... Uh, especially until they died, and I'm sure this happens to many people, like how much I really f- followed their um, their philosophies. Um, my mom, I, my mom used to always, I always felt like she always got the perfect thing. Like she knew what was perfect, and she got got the perfect, you know, knew knew the right thing for everything. And uh, then I realized after she passed, she just chose to see everything she got as the perfect right thing. Like, you know, if I'm holding this pen in the recording studio, oh, this is wonderful. Well, it doesn't have a cap, but you don't need a cap, you know, because you're going to be writing. You know, you just don't need a cap. There's no need. And you just use it. This is, gosh, of course they have a Prismacolor premiere. <laughs> you know, because this the is voice. classy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she was very, very positive and had very strong opinions about, you know, but she would say, as soon as she met somebody, she would be on board like Tanya Mosley. Have you met her? Oh, my God, she's darling <laughs> and so gifted. And she's out of Detroit and we have family from there. And so, you know, she's good people, you know. Would like, she try to um, introduce me to family? Would that be oh, something God. she would do? She would, she would amp you up to the next person she met. Like, so she yeah. would have your information. Then she'd have Google, you know, Google you, tell, tell everybody um, she was a hype man uh, for everyone. The number one thing that every cult has is a masterful leader. And in your family, 
you write that your mom was the leader. So aside from her, like, making everything good and she had a positive outlook, what made her the leader? She, well, she had the enthusiasm for everything. So she was delighted by everything and... uh, and she had some strong yeah just she loved to travel she loved um she loved things that were shiny. I mean part of the reason I got into show business she loved things that were shiny like fame and prestige uh things like uh it, it, she liked to win she liked the idea mm. of people who were the best um mm. like so my sister when she became a physician i think that was a real piece of tinfoil from my mother's nest, Um, as well as, you know, when I have experienced any level of success, she likes to, she she was very excited by that. And I would definitely, my sister and I definitely bring her stuff to go, is this good enough? (laughs) (laughs) And is this going to make the cut? I want to talk about um, something you joke about often And it falls loosely under this talk about cults. And that is what you call the temple of Finn. Um, Yes. So there is this story in your stand-up where you talk about the last days of your mother's life when she was in hospice. And in it, you, of course, impersonate her voice, as you do so well. Um, Let's listen to a bit. My mom was positive till the end. You know, I mean, the great thing about this whole thing is, this is the first time in my life I've been below goal weight on Weight Watchers. <laughs> Mom, you do know that even if a coffin is tight around the hips, eventually it fits. <laughs> Honey, do not do that one. That is not a good one. But the joke's on me because she got herself cremated and now she's just a pound! <laughs> she can wear anything. <laughs> that was Maria Bamford from her comedy album Crowd Pleaser. Okay, so, I mean, listening to that joke, all I could think was I hope to God that I am not still worrying about my weight. When I am right. on my deathbed. Right. And yet, and yet, I, I see the satisfaction of finally getting to your goal weight. Is that horrible no, to say? <laughs> no. It is bizarre. And I think that is sort of like the, I, I mean, I love, I love my mom so much. and she, But she, that was kind of her, one of her hobbies or like basically every day she would write down her weight and um had journals and journals of and 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 she was an active person like it didn't disable her it didn't like take her out of the game she was very uh would totally do stuff like she her, if she had disordered eating it wasn't um didn't make her life small or anything she just was kind of always upset about her weight um do you think you it was the mark it. of her generation too it seems like they were very weight conscious in the way of writing down your weight every day, that kind of thing, weighing yourself every day. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's gone away. I just think, I mean, I think there is a lot more body positivity, but um, yeah, I think it's definitely still a thing, for, at least for some people I know, you know. And um, But as I get older, I'm, I'm hoping that I I have less interest in that stuff. Um, but it's hard because it is was set in me early. And even my dad, my dad, part of the reason he died, I think, was depression. Um, mm. And he also got very obsessed. And I don't know if this is the thing with dementia of trying to, he was, he was worried that he was going to get fat and mm. um, had, anyways, he was 5'10", probably like 130. 20 pounds um, and he got COVID and he passed uh, partially because his body just didn't have any extra to to maintain him on. He was very weak. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, being thin, but that was a major value in our family was my mom was always on a diet, always 
no no butter, no, like, yeah, no sugar or in the house, like, bananas. Yeah, you, you write and you talk quite a bit um, about your own eating disorder and that magical number that you're always looking for on the scale, um, the five-pound difference between that number and the, the number that then gets you worried. It's just really interesting how you say as you get older – Maybe that grip has lifted a little bit. Does it feel different? Is the obsession, does it lessen? I, I hope so. I don't, I think it's kind of like a, I mean, that's the other thing I like about 12-step groups is like, it is kind of a day at a time. Like I, I can go back in to the, yeah, into that freak out uh, immediately uh, if I if I wish, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that as I deteriorate, uh, and it's yeah that it, that it's I'll be more accepting of myself, and also spend more time thinking about other things, other things. Maria Bamford, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Maria Bamford's new memoir is called "Sure, I'll Join Your Cult." She spoke with Tanya Mosley. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from Pushkin. In the original audiobook, The Art of Small Talk, actresses and comedians Casey Wilson and Jessica St. Clair share six simple rules for how to engage in small talk. Available on Audible, Spotify, or wherever you get your audiobooks.